Welcome to Drinks with Defenders. I'm Addie B. Plate. And I'm Kayla Murphy. We're two law school friends turned criminal defense attorneys turned podcast hosts. We're here in this space because we now work in separate offices and miss collaborating with each other. We've been talking about creating a podcast for years where we talk about the complexities of the criminal justice system, the aspects of it that we grapple with, and the importance of what we do. At the end of a long work week, we want to sit down, have a drink with each other, and talk about the rabbit holes of criminal defense, just like we always have. So let's get into it. Cheers. I was just thinking that this is our last episode of Drinks with Defenders for 2023. And it feels right that we're drinking Prosecco <laughs> to celebrate that. I've been really into mimosas lately, <laughs> which is why I thought we should do the motion mimosa tonight. Oh, look at that straw. Girl, you should introduce okay. our cocktail and I can tell you about the way I, I blitzed mine up. But you, it was your idea. So share with the class what a motion, a motion mimosa is. So you're going to need a lot of champagne. Or Prosecco. Uh, we don't discriminate here. That's... Absolutely right. Definitely a little bit of orange juice. I noticed in our text chain that my juice auto spelled to justice. So I said, we need an orange juice. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, Kayla. I um, like that. Definitely some skepticism of the legal system and how the court is going to roll dashed in there. And then what did you add, Addie? A little bit of prosecutorial side eye. <laughs> Yeah, on the side, garnish it with some side eye. Do you notice that when you file motions, prosecutors will like give you attitude or be like annoyed? Yes. It's funny that you asked that because I don't know what your experience is in your practice, but, and we're going to get into it tonight, but, and I've, you know, alluded to it on this podcast before, but a motion to suppress, I really feel like is in our line of work, usually the big dog motion, right? That or a motion to dismiss or, you know, there's a bunch of other little motions in between. But in a lot of cases, I feel like a motion to suppress is a huge thing that can be dispositive of your case. And I don't know what the practice is in other people's, you know, jurisdictions or where you live, Kayla, but in, you know, the community that I practice in, it's like anytime a motion to suppress is filed, depending on the prosecutor and really depending upon the the prosecuting agency, that can be viewed as like negotiations are off. We're preparing for trial. And the offer that I maybe previously gave you is revoked because you filed a motion to suppress. In one one of the prosecuting agencies, the county, um, say they send over like written uh, pretrial settlement offers. And it usually has this offer that this offer is revoked upon a filing motion to suppress or something like that. There's language in that, in the written settlement offer. That in like their over. standard form. Yes, that has um, some language about, you know, the effect that a motion to suppress would have. And I, and I can't remember it verbatim, but many of them view a motion to suppress, which I think is kind of hugely helpful for your case, for the defense. Um, they view that as a revocation of the negotiation. Some prosecutors, and again, blanket statement, some prosecutors leave it open until, you know, we file briefing and they allow the conversation to continue. Some prosecutors, I've argued motions to suppress before, and then the prosecutor comes back to the table and is willing to negotiate with me. Totally depends upon the individual prosecutor. But I think anytime I file like a big, like a big girl motion, um, it's received as like, you know, depending upon what it is, uh, it can be received not well. So, um, and, and, you know, really, what is our job other than just filing motions? That's our job. Something I was going to say is I was talking to my husband, who's also a criminal defense attorney, and he is very intellectual. So he's really into making like, you know, these intricate legal arguments and filing motions. He has gotten like really discouraged because in his experience, it seems like 
most of the time when it's a dispositive motion, like you were saying, the court will almost always find a way to rule in favor of the prosecution, even if they have to jump through all of these like mental loopholes or like do things that just don't make sense. You know, that that can be really frustrating. I think maybe we missed like a critical step. Um, and yeah, like we what is emotion? This, yeah, what is emotion, right? I mean, we, for I, sure. Maybe I've so goofed on no, your <laughs> explaining that, but we should probably break that down. So basically, motions are when a party is asking the court to do something. Right. So today we're going to be talking about search and seizure and what we call three six motions. Basically, this is where we're asking the court to suppress evidence and potentially dismiss the case based on the results of that evidence being suppressed. You're asking the court to do something in a motion. It's a written request to the court. You basically tell the court what the law is, what the facts of your case are, and apply the facts of your case to the law and ask that the court do what the court did in these other cases that are similar to your case or, you know, what the legal application would be. How that effectively plays out is you file a motion, you ask, you say, you know, this party is asking the court to typically it's issue an order, which is a ruling um, and an order that would follow the motion. And then you cite usually the rule. So, um, you know, for example, like in Idaho, you would cite, you know, most of my motions are under rule 12. So you would cite that rule and then, you know, how it works out again for me, depending upon the motion, you file the motion. After that, then I submit supplemental briefing. The state, the opposing party has an opportunity to respond. And then usually you go to hearing and you argue it out. Um, so the motion is a party's request to have the court make some sort of ruling. And, and Kayla, to your point about referencing law and case law, um, you know, you put some of that, you can put some of that language in your in your motion. I typically just cite the rules, um, either constitutional provisions or, you know, the, the statute or whatever it may be. And then I submit all of my case law where I'm doing, you know, comparing it to cases in my brief, which then I'll give the court after I file my motion. Because you want to have a motion filed and then get a notice of hearing and get that filed off so that you have a deadline that you're working with. And I don't know how you do your practice, but that's typically how I like to do mine. I like to get the motion. I like to get the hearing. I like to signal to the state like, hey, I'm asking the court to do something. Um, if I have a hearing already in the case, such as like a status hearing or maybe a pretrial conference, I might also file a subsequent mo motion asking the court to sh shorten time in order to have my motion that's a different motion heard at the mm -hmm. hearing that's already scheduled. So there's all sorts of motions that go on. I think we've kind of glanced over them in terms of what a motion is on this podcast. I, I think that sometimes I make the mistake of, you know, thinking people automatically know what a motion is and maybe not. So emotions, just, you're asking the court to do something. And sure. um, most of the practice, you know, there's a lot of negotiation. I think we've talked about that before when you're having conversations with the prosecutor, but when you're involving the judge and having the judge make a decision, typically you're needing a motion for that. And you can, you can raise them orally, depending upon the type of motion, you can raise the motion orally at the hearing a lot of judges don't like that because they'll be like, hey, that's not properly noticed up. You're kind of blindsiding opposing counsel and it's viewed as being discourteous depending upon the type of hearing and the type of motion that you're raising. So more, more often than not, it's more appropriate and preferred for you to file a written motion. I don't, again, I don't know how that is yeah. over in your um, community, but that is how it is. That all makes sense. Let's dive into the sexy stuff, like what yeah. the actual rules are that we're trying to get the court to enforce. And what we're going to be focusing on today is search and seizure. So specifically what people's rights are under the Fourth Amendment. So just as a reminder, the Fourth Amendment here, I'll just read it. It protects the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So generally speaking, in order to arrest you, cops need probable cause, right, in order to contact you. But in the real world, how it actually works is that 
they don't usually have probable cause to contact you. They're contacting you based on um, some of these exceptions to the warrant requirement that we're going to talk about. So I guess backing up here a little bit. So we have the U.S. Constitution, right? And Addie, I think that you had touched on this in one of our previous episodes, but the U.S. Constitution basically is the floor, right? That's like the uh, minimum rights that a state has to offer you. But states can go above and beyond that and offer additional protections. Right. And I think it depends upon the analysis of what we're applying for the Constitution, because something I always struggled with, and we, you know, talked about this, I think we went rounds with it in law school, is that the Constitution, the federal Constitution, is really the floor and the ceiling, depending upon the type of issue, right? Like the states can't impede upon something if, if the Constitution of the state is the ceiling, but they can offer additional protections if the federal constitution is the floor. And I think in the particular instance of search and seizure law, I view the constitution in terms of the fourth amendment being the floor, like the states can offer additional protections in this specific area that are beyond um, that of the federal constitution. And I think that, you know, flip that, you know, that maybe sounds kind of vague to people and not to get too off topic, but the reverse of that, I think in recent um, jurisprudence would be like instances where the federal constitution is like the ceiling. I think of like abortion rights, right? Like it can, there's not a lot of protection codified in federal law anymore. Um, And so states can have more protections or less restrictive, you know? So it's this weird dichotomy of whether or not the constitution is your floor or your ceiling. In this particular instance, I think of the the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment really being the floor because they lined out in in pretty specific case law what cops can't do, essentially, in terms of violating people's rights to search their homes, their cars. Well, we'll get into that, I think, in a little bit. Mainly their homes was really the primary concern, right? So probable cause. What is Diving back. Back to probable cause. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Always. It always comes back to probable cause. God, it's not um, the fucking truth. I mean, it, it's a pretty ambiguous term. Um, one definition I found from a state Supreme or a uh, U.S. Supreme Court case that has been cited a lot that probable cause exists where the facts and circumstances within the officer's knowledge and of which they have reasonably trustworthy information are sufficient in themselves to warrant a belief by a man of reasonable caution that a crime is being committed. Again, a little bit ambiguous. Addie, do you understand probable cause differently or have you found any definitions that have been helpful for you in your understanding of of what it is? I was trying to find it from, honestly, my criminal procedure outline from law school. And I think the thing that's really frustrating about probable cause, if you want to get down into the weeds with it, is that there's a million different ways to get probable cause, right? There's, There's a lot of, depending upon the state, there's a lot of different ways that probable cause can be reached. You know, you can have, and and I can dissect that further, but I think really when I think of probable cause, my mind goes to, did law enforcement have some anticipation that a crime either had been or was about to be committed that then gave them reason to search? And like, I just kind of, boil it down to that. I think it's a lot more complicated than that, but it's like reasonable suspicion and then some, and then gives you a lawful reason to search. Right. And so I think that, you know, your, I think every explanation of probable cause that I've ever found, I I don't particularly like because there's a lot of nuances with it. Um, cause then you get into like case law more often than not. And so, um, so I don't know. I don't, what would you, if you were to just, when you're thinking of something and say you get some discovery and you know that a search happens and you're looking through to see whether or not the cops in your client's case had probable cause in your mind, how do you distill probable cause? Well, I would love to answer that question, but I would like to first kind of take a step back. And I think maybe a 
better way to approach this and what I should have maybe brought up first was reasonable suspicion and (laughs) the most prevalent uh, exception to the warrant requirement, which is the Terry exception. Um, This is where, I don't know about you, Addie, but this is where most of my clients um, have connections with law enforcement is law enforcement contacting them through a Terry stop. So uh, you don't, not for you? I think Terry Frist, Terry stops and then Terry frisks are are usually because more often than not you're you know in a car or like some contact on the street sure. or something like that. So a Terry stop is usually how law enforcement really enters the picture more often than not. I would agree with that. So what is that? Basically, there's this case. I'm not going to get into all of the details here. Terry v. Ohio. Yes. If if the police can articulate individualized, reasonable suspicion that a person has been involved in criminal activity. They can stop them. They can question them. And if they have a belief of like, what is it like present dangerous or or something like that, they're able to pat them down for the purpose of finding weapons. So the way that I think of it is like a ladder. And at the bottom of the ladder, we have reasonable suspicion. Right. Like you still need some evidence to get there, right? Like maybe a couple of steps, but it's not super hard. And then higher up the ladder, we have probable cause, right? Which requires requires more evidence. And then right. going up from there, at the very top of the ladder, we have beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard that they would have to meet at trial to prove that somebody committed a crime. So yeah, as far as Terry goes, reasonable suspicion, again, it's a little bit ambiguous here. I know that state law varies a lot with these exceptions. Something I wanted to get into here was, Addie, did you see my text about um, 99 Problems? Oh my gosh. I It's so funny because I listened to that song. Admittedly, I listened to the mashup of Jay-Z and Lincoln Park, like that version of it, because I just think it goes a little bit harder and it just makes me angry. <laughs> I listen to that song going to court all the time. Um, it's like that. my pre-motion to suppress hearing song where I'm just like getting ready to fight a cop on the stand about whether or not they had, you know, probable cause to search a car. Yeah. And I think about that that song a lot because there it, it kudos to Jay-Z. I mean, who knew I, I would ever be, you know, venting about or commenting on his his craft, but I really think that he g- does a good job of kind of outlining how he, you know, the situation. It's really like a storytelling, and so you're you're sure. wanting to talk about dissecting the situation that's talked about in that song is really interesting because it does, you know, point all of the things that I think we're trying to hit on on the podcast tonight. Whether or not there was like a reason to pull him over, whether or not there was a reason to search his car, whether or not he had any ability to decline the search of his vehicle. Okay, let's see here. So uh, the year is 94 in my trunk is raw in the rear view mirror is the motherfucking law. I got two choices y'all pull over the car or bounce on the devil put the pedal to the floor. Okay, but I'm trying to see no highway chase with Jake. Plus, I got a few dollars. I can fight the case. So I pull over to the side okay, of the so road. Wait, I'm, I'm pausing you. So, so what has happened is Jay-Z, Jay-Z has realized that there's a cop behind him. And he's trying yeah, to determine he's thinking whether critically. or not. Yes. And he's trying to determine whether or not to, that he, if he's getting pulled over, if he has to pull over, if he wants to, you know, mm-hmm. r- run for it. And then he realizes that he has the ability to fight his case if he wants to so then he pulls over and then that's typically so i think a critical step has been reached number one why he's getting pulled over is the first part right so there has to be a lawful reason to pull someone over there has to be usually some sort of traffic violation so he pulls over yes go ahead kayla yeah good go good go back good to your place <laughs> good stopping place okay she, she so i heard more alcohol <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh, so I heard, son, do you know why I'm stopping you for? Because um, I'm young and I'm black and my hat's real low. Or do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. Am I under arrest or should I guess some more? Then the cop says, well, you was doing 55 in a 54. License and registration and step out of the car. 
Boom. Okay, let's pause there. 55 and a 54. Did the cop have a legit reason to pull him over? I guess technically, right, a traffic infraction. I'm a little concerned that there could be some pretext issues here based on what we're seeing, though, so far. I think on face value, he has a lawful reason to stop him, right? Because it's like, you're going 55 and a 54. Like, that's a traffic violation. I would obviously have the question, though, when I'm, like, reviewing, if I was his attorney, how the cop was able to, like, speed check him for going 55 and a 54, right? So oh, it's like, how can point. you prove that he's going 55? So if you can't actually show that he's going 55 and a 54, there's no actual reason for stopping him. I don't know if that's, that's a real argument. Point. But that would be, you know, the thing that I would challenge it at first is if, you know, if that's the only if that's the only thing that he's getting stopped for. Let's see here. License and registration. OK, that's legit. Can the cop just ask him to step out of the car yeah. just based on this alone? Yes. Then the cop says, are you carrying a weapon? I know a lot of you are. That is OK. That's a problem. <laughs> okay. I mean, kind of, okay. I think he, he can t- technically ask him that. Because he's asking like an officer safety question. I think that would be the argument that, you know, a cop would make on the stand. But Kayla, you you obviously have a question about that. Well, that no, goes into the Terry concern, just right? Just to be real with you. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think here. So it's like, would the cop have a, like a reasonable, a reasonable belief that Jay-Z was presently dangerous uh, based on the fact that he's young and black? no. So but that's what Jay-Z, that that's cop- what Jay-Z is asserting, right? He thinks that he's getting stopped because he's young, he's black. And so he's alleging that it's a pretext stop. But I think from the cop's standpoint, there is a case that says, you know, when people are pulled over, that the cop can order them to get out of the car, right? So but as far as patting them down, though, at least in Washington State, oh, no, he's still just have asking. to meet that I think he can, okay, he can ask, fair. but he can't mm-hmm. touch. He can't mm-hmm. touch him. Mm-hmm. He can't frisk him unless he has, I think, reasonable, articulable suspicion for a weapon, right? Or the present belief of dangerousness, something with dangerousness. I'm like, I'm not slurring you guys. I just can't say that word. Um, but yeah, I remember I had a case where um, I had a kid and he was stopped for a DUI and it was a weed DUI. And the cop, didn't have any basis to think that he was dangerous, but he had him get out of the car and then he just frisked him, which is no, no reason. And he found like a weed vape and we were able to get that tossed out because he didn't have a reason to frisk him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you can touch him. You can ask people to get out of the car so that you are protecting them, but you don't have the ability to just like touch people. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is the difference there. Cause I know they can order, um, passengers um out of the car as well right i think if they're concerned they can ask people to step out of the car and i was i have a motion to suppress where um i had a motion to suppress where uh the officer was asking my client to get out of the car and he cited Mm -hmm. that that specific supreme court case to my client and something i wanted to bring up tonight that i i think is really interesting that i kind of see a lot is that I think if people think that cops don't actually know case law, that it, you're living in um, bliss, cops are trained pretty heavily, I think, on case law, whether or not they have an understanding of it equivalent to, you know, having a law degree is another issue. But I think that they are um, taught some sort of understanding of case law. And I think that I've seen in numerous of cases of mine where cops regurgitate case law, either federal case law or state case really? law. To people. I have never yeah. seen that in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it that a lot is here. So wild. Damn, I know it's just different. And I think that it adds some element that I think could be really fun to challenge one day, maybe like in a coercion context, because Ooh. I think if a cop is asking you questions and they're citing the law to you and cases to you you might have a little bit more of your sense of free will might be a little bit altered by that. Like if somebody were to come cite, you know, the law to me yeah, and they're, you know, they have a gun, a gun and handcuffs on them. I might react to that a little bit differently, but anyways, Kayla, I, I derailed. Sure. I was just saying that I think it's interesting no, because good point. I, to your point of asking people to get out of the car, I've seen an instance where, the cop straight up told the person the actual case that allows the cop to ask people to get out of the car. 
I'm impressed with that cough. Yeah. So I mean, it was interesting. Oh. I mean, to be totally real with you, I feel like I just see, I see a lot of sloppiness. I see a lot of like fucking people around and pushing the limit and seeing what you can get away with. That's what I see a lot of. I don't see a lot of cops, no one like quoting case law and thinking about them, like knowing that shit makes it a little bit more nefarious. Like, like, you know, you're fucking, you know what I mean? Breaking the rules. I mean... Yeah, I just, it's, it's inter- like, it's interesting, right? It goes both ways where it's like, oh, you maybe don't know the rules. And on the other side, where it's like, oh, you do know the rules. And it's interesting. So, so anyways, he asked Jay-Z to get out of the car. And then he asked him if he's carrying a weapon on Yeah. Him. Well, here, yes. I want to say here, too, I have another issue with this cop's conduct. I don't think that he had reasonable suspicion to extend the scope or length of his investigation like as far as i mean when cops stop you for a traffic issue they're supposed to immediately focus on resolving it right issuing you an infraction and getting you on your way this cop is not doing that so i think that we you know we could have a an argument that he's extending this stop without any reasonable suspicion to do so based on his inquiry so you're saying that you would challenge um and I think that, uh, so you're starting to go into um, a basis for suppression, which we can unpack that. Yeah, but you're start, you're saying that him asking, oh, you are, do you have a weapon on you is an yeah, unlawful he's like fucking extension. Around. For sure. Okay. He's like, get out of the car. It's like, dude, get him a fucking infraction for speeding if that's what you feel is necessary to protect the community and enforce the traffic code and get on your way. This is getting ridiculous. Okay. okay, so what happens next? Okay, so Jay-Z's like, I ain't stepping out of shit. All my paper's legit. And then the cop's like, well, do you mind if I have a look around your car a little bit? Jay-Z's like, well, my glove apartment is locked, so is the trunk in the back, and I know my rights, so you could need a warrant for that. Okay, lots to unpack here. First of all... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the chat, Clark. <laughs> Hi. Hey. Cheers. 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 Kayla, you're doing great rapping over there. I'm really Thank impressed you. with your with your mad skills. I spit a lot of game and I <laughs> fuck a lot of bitches. No, but I know I <laughs> Thank you. It's true. Okay, I it. mean, have you ever been in a car with this woman? If you put any <laughs> and you put any Drake song on, oh. it's it's on site. She she's a she's a know. 2012 like graduated from college girly at her finest. She lives through the the top hits of Drake, and she acts like Honestly. it. So I'm not surprised that this was the way she decided to go with tonight. <laughs> this is one of my toxic traits is liking Drake. Honestly, I'm but kind of embarrassed I'm, about it. I love that you were just like, we're going to unpack the law by this rap song. And I love that Clark. Clark's <laughs> like, the fuck? Okay. Kayla, you just got cooked. <laughs> you got cooked. It's I'm like, I don't know what that means. I think it's good. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um, okay. So here are my thoughts. Number yeah. one, Washington State does not have the automobile exception to the warrant requirement. Does Idaho? Yes. Okay. I think we talked about this a little bit last episode. Is this where to go away so badly because Oregon got rid of it? I guess Washington State doesn't have it, but Idaho still has it. And I just it's so difficult because it just feels like it's kind of a catch all, right? So it's like you and and um I think we we need to kind of just dissect some of the things we're talking about. So for sure, back to Jay Z's song. Um, so he's saying, I, I think you have a really good um, basis of for when you're you're talking about the thing that kind of starts getting nefarious. I think with the stop in in the song is that um, the cop starts asking questions that are unrelated to the traffic stop. And I think in my experience, the thing that's always hard is that when you are then challenging those types of inquiries to the court, if they are reasonable questions that are triggered by some sort of other suspicion that arises during the duration of the traffic stop, they can start investigating those other things. 
However, um, they've got to have that song, reasonable suspicion, right? And the I think a fundamental and foundational piece is that any stop that detours or extends beyond the original purpose without some sort of reasonable, articulable suspicion for another offense runs afoul of the Fourth Amendment. And in your, I'm assuming uh, Washington has a the Fourth Amendment codified into your state constitution. Idaho does. So when in, in, a, in a motion, you know, I say it violated the Fourth Amendment and then the state provision of the state constitution, which is basically the same thing, just codified into the state's constitution. Because again, that floor and ceiling analysis. So yes. if it runs, if they start, you know, detouring or going into something that they don't have a lawful reason to do so, that is a basis to challenge then the search that if say, you know, after the cop and Jay-Z song starts asking all the earth, after he asks all those questions, he then eventually searches Jay-Z's car and finds um, evidence of a criminal offense. Either maybe it's like drugs or maybe it's a gun and maybe Jay-Z's like a, a felon or something like that. Maybe he finds something in Jay-Z's car. You're saying that based upon those inquiries that unlawfully extended the stop, you could challenge, i.e. suppress the evidence that is eventually found because at the point the cop starts asking those questions, the stop has violated Jay-Z's Fourth Amendment. That's the big picture. That was like the, that was the, the hard, yeah, like, big picture. that's the big picture, right? So eventually, you know, when we're talking about motions to suppress, <laughs> there's usually something that's found either in the search of a home or a search of a car or maybe some other search that is violative of the person's rights. And you're saying but Addie, so far we've got in the song, some more to unpack here. Yeah. I know. Well, I'm just saying so, you're saying in your song that there's been a violation, the first violation potentially the first was violation mm-hmm. of of the the questions he was being asked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Give it back. So now um, we're back to the glove box in the trunk. Well, hold on. JD's like, I ain't stepping out of shit. All my papers legit. I think Jay's might be in the wrong here. I think he may have to comply with the officer. I wouldn't want him like to be charged with obstruction for, you know, hindering the cops investigation. But even if an attorney has a basis to challenge the cops extension of the stop and whatever he potentially finds on Jay-Z, if he were to search Jay-Z, Jay-Z should still comply with the cop in that moment so that he doesn't catch more charges. I was talking about with a felony attorney in my office lately. Say this case as it is now goes to trial. Say the facts that I previously put on the record in terms of like maybe drugs were found in his car. He's What if Jay-Z is not originally charged with obstruction? And the state turns around and amends their complaint and says that he has obstruction charges now. And then they yeah. find additional stuff in his car. Can the state still get to, and, and this is, again, maybe something we might have to dissect on a later episode, but things I've just been thinking about is like the state is always yeah. really crafty, right? Something you yeah, have to keep sure. in mind as an attorney, if, you know, in my shoes, I always think that I have a good argument. And sometimes I think my hubris can be, I forget that the other side has a bunch of chess moves they can do as well, right? And so being an attorney, there is a counter move for every move that you have. And I think if you were to challenge potentially the other evidence, but then they turn around and amend and say, hey, him not stepping out of the car is an obstruction charge. And then we're going to get to the evidence that he got anyways. That might be a really smart prosecutor. I don't know if they can lawfully do that. But it's just like... You know, oh, well, why just, not, dude? I have prosecutors. Yes, they they fucking threaten that shit all the time. And I mean, at just, least in my jurisdiction, the statute of limitations is a year. So it's like technically any time between when you commit the criminal act, you know, 12 months for, from mis- then, they can for misdemeanors, for, mis- for general. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. there's other crimes that don't have that limitation, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I should have definitely clarified that. Just uh, district court misdemeanors and gross misdemeanors. Daisy doesn't want to do what the cop wants him to do, which fair. No. He's like, like, I'm not getting out of the car, but like, maybe not the best idea. But as good attorneys, we're analyzing his potential legal liability to determine how best to move forward. So we've noted that potential 
that potential obstruction situation. Right. Okay. So cop's like, well, do you mind if I have a look around your car a little bit? So cop is asking for consent. And then Jay-Z is like, well, my glove compartment is locked. So it was trunk in the back. And I my rights. So you're going to need a warrant for that. Okay. So let's pretend Jay-Z is driving through Idaho. God knows why he would ever be doing that. But visiting you, Addie, his new address. Yeah, I was going to say, he can hang out with me. (laughs) (laughs) um, He stopped in Idaho, which has the warrant exception to the automobile requirement. So, like, what do you think would happen? Like, do you think it would matter that his shit was locked up? I think you flipped that. I think you totally just just flipped that. So it has the automobile exception to the warrant requirement. (laughs) I think you just did, like, a a scrivener's error in terms of misplacing those two words. So, yeah, there's the automobile exception to the warrant requirement, which, again, foundational piece. I think we've maybe talked about it on here in a previous episode. Um, In order to search someone's home or someone's car without their consent or without a lawful reason, like, you have to get a warrant, which is something that usually, like, you know, it has to have probable cause. Right. And so there, and you have to petition, a, a warrant is, you know, something that you have to get, you know, signed by a judge. Uh, and it allows mm-hmm. you to search the area for the specific things you're looking for. Um, there's a warrant has to be specific. You know, it's not just, they, they try to have the requirement of warrants have to be specific in their nature of what you're looking for. So Jay-Z is like, no, you can't search my stuff. You don't have my consent. You don't have probable cause. I'm alleging you don't have probable cause at this time. Um, and you don't have a warrant, so you can't search the car. Locked up. And yeah. so you're asking me if he's in Idaho, and there's the automobile exception. Again, there has to be probable cause of an offense to then search his car. And in the automobile exception is this big fancy thing that gets thrown around with Fourth Amendment cases, where it basically allows cars to be searched um, with the, on the basis of probable cause, um, because they are movable essentially. And so people are worried about the evidence potentially, you know. Okay. Addie, I see. So it's like, they still have to have probable cause. They just don't have to jump through the hoops of getting the actual warrant. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Did you take criminal procedure in law school? <laughs> yeah, it's just been a minute. Well, I, I was mean, like, I couldn't know, remember. We don't, we don't have that. We don't have that here. So it's like, yeah, I I didn't really recall what exactly was required for the warrant exception. And, the, and whatever the fuck. Right. And so, and and I believe that, um, you know, exceptions to the warrant requirement at their core are based upon this con- concept of imminency, that there's some imminent need to obtain the evidence that you're trying to search, right? And so with the automobile exception, I believe the, the big case that created the automobile exception is Acevedo. And I might be um, kind of butchering the way you say that, but um, I can get pull the citation for that if you want to, Kayla. But if, if you no, want me man, to, Kayla. Cool. I, but I, um, you're all the citation I need. So, um, um, yeah. So, so basically, the automobile exception at its core is that if there's probable cause that the vehicle contains evidence of a crime, then the police can search that vehicle for that evidence. In that case, is I believe the the main case is a seat of Acevedo, and then there's other cases that kind of tailor that, and then you know it's been expanded in some contexts to include motorhomes and things like that because America, right? Like. We love big cars. So, um, so damn. So what I'm hearing, like, basically, even if Jay-Z was driving through Idaho, they still won't have probable cause to search his vehicle for anything based on the information that we have. Yeah, I don't exception still requires a, a piece of probable cause of a crime. There's also, they can, with the Terry exception, I think they can search the vehicle, but don't they still need to have that dangerousness component? And that wouldn't be and present. Then, and then, and then um, Terry limits what the scope of the search, because you're looking for specific things. You're looking for places that 
for a Terry and search like of the car. Yeah. So you have to have the valid step of the car and then reasonable suspicion of a weapon. And I believe that the case that expanded that is a case called, is a case called long. Um, and then you can search the passenger compartment for a weapon. Um, and it's limited basically to the safety of the police officer in, in terms of um, the rationale behind allowing the search. Um, and you can't mm-hmm. search in a compartment that's too small to contain a weapon. So say you have like a makeup purse or something in the car and you're searching for, you know, you're searching for like an AR assault rifle, right? You can't search this little bag looking for that gun. Um, so Terry searches limit really what that's you can a great search. Point. The automobile exception totally. is a little bit more allows for other things to be searched inside the car. Um, so that's another piece that's kind of working in all of this too, is like you get inside the car. So you get inside the car, you get to search it. That doesn't mean that everywhere inside the car is depending on the basis for the search is on limits or is, you know, okay for the officer to search depending upon why they're searching the car. Absolutely. At least that's my understanding. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's my understanding too. And that same rule would go for if the police like had a search warrant for your house to find like, again, an AR-15, they can be looking through. For a person, right? Right. Say you're searching like the the home for like a person on the run. You can't go and search the person's bathroom and start going through their little bags looking for stuff. So anyways. Yeah. There are rules that cops got to follow. And basically how we get them to follow those rules is we try to to negotiate. Well, I guess we can't. I mean, we can't really make them follow the rules. Like really, it's just like trying to see if them not following the rules can help. No, man, you can't make. I mean, I don't know. I think the only way to get law enforcement to abide by the rules is one to educate them them on what the rules are, which I think is a double-sided knife depending upon how you look at the situation but also like if you think a cop did something wrong and you're a criminal defense attorney and you're going through your case and you're like hey this cop searched a compartment that was unlawful you better be taking that cop to court right you better be taking that cop to court and you better be asking them the questions as to why they did that search obviously if your client wants you to you don't get to make that decision more often than not right but and that's the way i I approach it for sure. And Addie, to go back to your point, though, like with prosecutors being able to like add charges, there are a lot of different pressures on people. Yeah. Right. Like, so I guess my first tactic is always to take these issues to the prosecutor and be like, hey, homeboy fucked up. Like he didn't read her her Miranda warnings or he didn't have probable cause to arrest her. You're talking so, about like, holding the consideration. You're saying you're holding the cop accountable and you're pointing out the mistakes the cop did by going to the prosecutor first and saying, hey, this was wrong. What are we going to do? Well, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, I don't really know if that necessarily holds the cop accountable. But as far as like what's best for my clients, I think that the best move is always to like try to do what's a sure thing instead of what's like a gamble insofar as we can get the prosecutor to agree to something that we think is like reasonable you know, based on the issues at play, because anytime you file a motion, like you said, Addie, the prosecutor get could get pissed off. They could add charges. Yeah. Um, and then you could fucking lose. And I think it totally depends, like, you know. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Please go on. I was going to say, I think it totally depends on one, the, um, the risk involved in your case, the relationship with your prosecutor and what your goal is. Because I have some cases where before I talk to a prosecutor, I think that the cop did something wrong and I'll file my motion to suppress or I'll send an email and say, hi, I'm filing this, look at this, or I'll just file it and then talk to the prosecutor on the back end. It depends on the case, depends on the prosecutor. If I have a case where I think we could win a motion to suppress or at least file one, but I'm worried about potential felony charges being pursued. And right now it's a misdemeanor. Then, you know, there's that conversation where you have to have a weigh-in with your con- with your client. Because typically when I talk to a client, I'm like, hey, you know, I have the conversation about if there's evidence that I think is unlawfully obtained, do you want me to try to challenge it? I mean, there's a lot of client management that's also going on with all of these cases. 
But then if depending upon the risk, like you kind of have to check in with your client and say, Hey, are you wanting this evidence tossed out? Are you wanting to gamble and try to win? Or are you willing to eat a misdemeanor so that you're not potentially fighting a felony? And those are hard conversations, right? Um, and so to your point, Kayla, maybe what depending upon what? Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, what's shitty, too, is when the cops, like, really fuck up or there's a really big issue, but it's, like, none of the evidence that you could suppress would really even help the situation, right. what I mean. Right. right. And I think... That always sucks, too. Right. And so, back to, like, you know, Jay-Z's song, where it's, like, okay, to put it in an example so that I think people kind of understand, if there's something found in his car and you you can, you know... So far, we have potential basis to challenge, maybe. Do we file something to get whatever's tossed out so that we are limiting evidence that could be used at trial? Maybe Jay-Z just wants to no longer go to court and he's like willing to just settle. There's just a lot of client management that's having to go on between all of that. And maybe also you have a prosecutor that will work with you. Like Kayla, I get so... The flip side of what you said, I get so nervous like highlighting something that's I think of concern to a prosecutor because I get so nervous that they're not going to do what I want them to do. And then, <laughs> then I'm just stuck with a, with fi- filing the motion to suppress and there's deadlines on motions to suppress. So it's like, do I talk to the, to the prosecutor before I bump into a deadline or do I handle the deadline first and then talk to a prosecutor? Do I file another motion to get the deadline extended? Like, what am I doing? Yeah. And so there's all these decisions that have to happen. That's what I would think. Yeah. I would say like, I would say my first, my first thing to do is to try to negotiate. And like, insofar as that's not successful, like maybe you do have to wave BD trail a little bit or like get the process extended a little bit to do the motion. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess for my practice, that's just typically how I've proceeded is just tried to bring the issues to the prosecutor's attention before writing stuff. Um, you have so much more faith in people in that sense than I do, because I think no, that, no, I really don't. I, I, yeah. just, I think that every like nobody really wants to work, in my opinion. And I just feel like if you kind of threaten people with work, maybe they'll come to the table, and right. and do what you you know get these fucking cases resolved. But if it's not. Yeah, we can play. Sidebar: I think something I was thinking about before tonight, getting on the podcast, is thinking about. You know, it's near the end of 2023, just thinking about the changes that have happened in my practice in the year and the things that I've struggled with. And like, I've really kind of gotten into this mentality and I think it'll change over time. But I think when there's things that I think are wrong in a case, I am very nervous about trusting other people to do the right thing. And I really feel at the end of the day that my job is just me being a bulletproof vest strapping myself to my client and going to court. Like that's how I feel more often than not. I feel like when I try to like ask people to do the right thing, you know, I do have wonderful working relationships with some of the people that are opposing counsel. And there have been often, there has been times that people have done the thing that I have needed them to do in order to get the case to the position that we're wanting. But more often than not, I feel like I have to file so much shit to get there. Or I have to send a bunch of emails. I think my inbox for my email address has been over for the past two weeks. The last entire week at work, I couldn't send or receive an email because my inbox was too full. So I'd have to delete a few to then get some in. And I, it's been insanity. And I'm just like, okay, would I rather play phone tag back and forth? And like, depending upon my relationship with this person, have some sort of inclining of what they're going to want to do, try to call them understanding that they might not be in the office because it's the holiday season or do I just file the motion so at least the motion's secure and then deal with the hell and high like high water on the back end and that is a hard decision to make you know it's like the juggling of consequences is never easy um and luckily it's your client's ultimate decision so yeah I think I've gone to a place where if I want to file a motion to suppress, I think my first step is to file a motion to enlarge or extend time first so that I can do the decision as to whether or not I'm wanting to file the motion to suppress or have a conversation with the prosecutor. 
Because both of those things, usually I need to talk to my client first and you're just dealing with not enough time to make those decisions. And that sucks because it usually, like in Idaho, you have 28 days from the day the person enters their not guilty plea in, in, you know, in the misdemeanor world, you have 28 days. And I think felonies, but felonies have some additional requirements as, as to when hearings need to be set. But in my practice, 28 days from when they enter their not guilty plea to then when I need to file a motion to suppress. In the meantime, between that and then, you know, when that needs to be filed, people are deciding whether or not they want counsel. Maybe they go to court for the first time after that without counsel, and then they decide they want counsel at that time. So then you're filing, maybe that 28 days has ran before you even get the case. Or maybe you get a case like years afterward and your client's been like absconding for several years. And then you're like, oh shit, there's a suppression issue. And this person never had an attorney at that time do I file a motion to suppress like all these years later? And so you're just dealing with this weird timeline, trying to figure out what to do. And there's also all this like politicking that you have to do with the prosecutor. So anyway, sure. um, no, that's a yeah, long sidebar to say in the in- example you've given us with Jay-Z, there's a lot of decisions that you're having to make. Um, And then back to the law itself, like, you also have to look at a set of facts and then be like, okay, let me like go into my little, you know, case law search and, and plug in the facts of this case and see how it matches with the law as it is and see if I even have a good argument. And that is time consuming. So um, I don't know how you do it, Kayla. Yeah. I mean, Lawyering every time I get a case, yeah, every time I get a case and I'm like, oh, do I want to do a motion to suppress? I'm like, okay, what's the specific issue? And then, you know, in Jay-Z's case, it's like, okay, like questions that were asked that were like, you know, extended the stop. Okay, like, let's look at the facts of the cases that have been decided that that deal with that issue. Where does the law come down on it? Is this a good case to compare this to? And it, that is exhausting. Girl, no, 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 uh, no. I, I feel like you're doing the prosecutor's work for them. I feel like first thing, no, first thing you do is you take your best argument to them. Be like, here's what's up. Give us this amendment. L- lower the charge. Don't recommend jail. And then in exchange, you won't have to litigate this shit. And then if they don't want to oh, no, play ball, then you write a motion. Asleep. Then you make them, then make them respond. Oh, okay. I'm just, you're just seeing like the validity of your issue. Writing. Yeah. Like when you're okay. actually like arguing the issue, then you're like, oh God, I have to go through all these cases. and like, who the fuck has time for this? And then you realize, oh, I have to. And so you're like, then you're just, you know, yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. There's you go to a prosecutor and you ask them to do what you want them to, but. And don't argue against yourself. You just, you don't, you don't have to argue against yourself. Like work smarter, not harder, you know? But yeah, I actually think we're about out of time. So I, I think that this was a very productive conversation and an analysis of Jay-Z's situation. We didn't even so, fucking finish our song. I'm so sorry to cut you off, but let me just yeah. finish the last verse of the song and then I'll let you finish that thought because it just, it goes so well. It's perfect. It is perfect. Okay. So where was I at? Okay. So you're in the car a little bit. No. Yeah. Jay-Z's like, I know my rights. So you're going to need a warrant for that. And the cop's like, aren't you sharp as a tack? You some type of lawyer or something? Somebody important or something? Jay-Z's like, huh, I ain't passed the bar, but I know a little bit. Enough that you won't illegally search my shit. shit. (laughs) Cop says, well, we'll see how smart you are when the canine comes. comes. (laughs) Okay, please continue. That's a perfect perfect piece because (laughs) canines, I don't know. It's so hard because I see them. Puppies are narcs, but they're they're cute. I was just gonna ask how you felt about the canines because I know that we both really like dogs. And something that's plagued me in my profession is the canines, when they get involved in a case, (laughs) there's there's some challenges you wanna, you know, fight with the canines, but we have this little grassy area outside one of our courthouses and um I see the canine officers sometimes like, you know, playing with the canines and I'm like, oh, it's like a dog. It's so cute. And then I'm like, oh no, it's a canine. And then I'm like, do That's I know that canine? I'm like, officer. I'm like, well, making people who, if they harm the canine face the same criminal offenses for harming a cop. And so like, there's like 
serious liability with those canines because they are law enforcement officers. But I look at them and I'm like, do I know that canine from any of my cases? And then I want to get a good old look at it. But I'm just like, because I'm like, okay, like, is that canine like slow to pick up the ball? Like, I like, you know, I just, yeah, I'm, like, so I'm like, okay, do I, is, there, is there a problem with this canine? Um, <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. I love but that. I'm kind of kidding. But there's been some really interesting case law around the dogs. And I'm trying to keep up with the cases that have been since this decision. I talked about it and I just wanted to read because I found it to be very interesting. Um, the summary statement on the Idaho Supreme Court case State v. Dorf, which is D-O-R-F-F. And here's what the case says, which is very interesting. The summary, and I, at the bottom of it says, this summary constitutes no part of the opinion of the court, but has been prepared by court staff for the convenience of the public, because I think it is kind of an important case. So here's what the summary says. It says, Kirby Dorf appealed to the Idaho Supreme Court from the denial of his motion to suppress evidence obtained after a police drug-sniffing dog jumped onto the exterior surface of his vehicle. Dorf argued that the drug dog's contact with, with his vehicle was a trespass for the purpose of obtaining information and therefore an unlawful search under the common law trespassory, I can't say that word, test as articulated in United States v. Jones, it gives the site for that case. Um, it's a 2012 uh, United States, I, I believe, Supreme Court case and applied by the Idaho Supreme Court in State v. Howard, um, which is a 2021 case, and State v. Randall, which um, is another 2021 Idaho case, um, I believe Idaho Supreme Court case as well, where the court concluded that a drug dog entry into a vehicle is a search under the Fourth Amendment. The Idaho Supreme Court explained that a search occurs when a drug dog trespasses against the exterior of a vehicle during a free air drug sniff as its physical contact with the vehicle amounts to intermeddling at common law. The court then determined that the relevant drug dog intermeddled with Dorf's vehicle when it jumped onto the front driver's seat side door and window, planted its two front paws and sniffed the vehicle's <laughs> upper seams. This trespass for the purpose of obtaining information was a warrantless search of Dorf's vehicle, and the state did not argue that an exception to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement applied. From this, the court reversed the denial of his motion to suppress, vacated his conviction, and remanded the case to district court for further proceedings. That's so, amazing. I think this should be called the two-paw roll. <laughs> it's so interesting. Well, and I think we you know, maybe should have done a better job of kind of breaking down like what a search is, what a seizure is, but Basically, like you did, there's things and I met earlier because I think that you really are having to show that a search occurred, a seizure occurred. Mm. But any event, it's saying that like the the drug dog, which usually can go around a car without needing, you know, a warrant right. or really probable cause for that. Um, once that drug dog touched the vehicle, the it trespassed onto, yeah, it <gasps> trespassed onto this person's car, which then constituted you know, a trespass and that was in violation. So it's just really interesting. Um, and I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I believe there's been some talk. I'm not sure if it's come up in one of my cases or if it was just brought up to me by another attorney, but I think that law enforcement is going to, um, I don't know if that's going to get traction in other jurisdictions, this case, if there's going to be challenges like that, but I think law enforcement is going to have to be like, you know, creative and be like, is it okay if my dog touches your car to try to get consent for the trespass? Um, Do you want to pet my puppy? Better be if he's a fucking cop. That, <laughs> and that's the thing that's so interesting is like that's how Damn. the law like shifts. And so I think that, you know, I'm just trying to keep an eye on the canine cases because they're, they're fascinating. And really it's kind of like, in terms of like drug cases, canines are really usually involved in like, for sure more often than not and so i'm like okay what's gonna happen with the canine law canine laws because it's just it's interesting so well, um keep up check on out that, that case yeah and keep up there's been some interesting decisions i think since dwarf but um yeah they're fast we're gonna stay up to date definitely like in the new year i think addy you're totally right we're gonna like stay up to date with um yeah, interesting cases, probably particularly Fourth Amendment cases and cases that involve criminal law. But yeah, with that being said, like, Addie, I love you. Happy holidays. 
Happy holidays, fam. We love you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Um, Yes. Next year, we're going to dive into so many other fun topics and we're going to keep you guys more up to date on what's going on in the legal world. So uh, cheers to a beautiful new year. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Happy holiday. (laughs) 